0: Alder Spring Ranch is a rarity in the world of corporate agriculture, a family-owned and operated ranch. Glenn and Carol Elzinga and their family are personally responsible for every aspect of the making of Alder Spring Ranch grass-fed beef. With training in forestry and forest ecology, Glenn Elzinga began his forestry career in Maine. In the mid-1980s, he moved to Salmon, Idaho, where he worked as a district forester for the Salmon BLM for over a decade. As his family began to grow, he realized he wanted a better way to raise kids than leaving them for work all day. So began his current career in ranching. After ranching for 17 years, Glenn's cattle herd has grown from 7 head to over 600. He keeps his hand in forestry by working with his wife Carol on consulting projects and by horse logging occasionally with his two Belgian mares, Pet and Pat. He hopes to train his new draft, Suffolk Geldings, Red and Snap, to log as well. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, January 31st, and as you heard today, we're going to the mountains of Idaho to see what being a cowboy is really all about. How are you doing this morning, Glenn?
1: I'm doing very well, Doug. Thank you. And how are you?
0: I'm doing well as well. Uh, let's start by talking about the weather. We're having quite a winter. What is <laughs> does that What does that do to uh, to a rancher, an Idaho rancher in the mountains? This
1: this much snow well um he's you're right it has been a very difficult winter but actually when we got started we we've been doing this for about 23 years and actually even before that when i was a forester i I remember winters like this in the 80s and you know we we can whine about uh, the current state of affairs but the reality is we we used to have quite a bit of winter like this. Um, it's been, as far as winter this year, yes, it's been worse in the past 20. We've had, there was, I think, about three weeks, Doug, where we did not get above zero degrees. And nights would go down to 30, 35 below zero. And it gets... there's, there's hardship. I mean, anything that has like a petroleum startup to it it becomes frustrating because things break and uh, plastic shatters, um, fuel gels, all these very frustrating things. But as far as the animal life, you know, us humans whine a little bit, but you know, as far as the horses and and the cattle, they all seem fairly happy, Uh, you know, and, and it's because we live in Idaho and you know, this is a high desert region and the, it's unusual that we get these gray days, day after day after day. They're usually these just window pane beautiful azure skies. And, you know, you can put up with a 35-degree below zero night under those twinkling stars if you can wake up and know that the sun's going to come back again. And, um, you know, a lot of our cattle are black-hided. They're black Angus, so they absorb a lot of uh, solar radiation. They they actually lay broadside to sun on days like that. And seem, they seem okay. They seem fine. I, I don't see anything frozen on them or anything like that. They're very well adapted to the cold. So,
0: Do you have to put them up at night and then have some kind of heated enclosure for them? Or do they just kind of – are they
1: live? No, they're just, they're just out there.
0: <laughs> they're just out there. And –
1: you know, if it, if the wind's ever going to blow, and we don't get a lot of wind here, if the wind's ever going to blow, then we have to strategize very carefully about where we're going to put them so they don't get any um, exposure. Um, but it's never indoors. It's always outside. So this is what it looks like. You know, when it's going to be 30, 35 below zero, we'll feed actually 25 to 40% more hay. They actually waste a lot because they, they lay on it, and that's fine. I'm fine with that because – When that hay hits the ground, it's going to stay down there after they lay on it. They're not going to eat it anymore. So you consider it waste, but it's not really because it it all ends up breaking down and becoming good organic matter for our little soil biota animals, like everything from worms down to bacteria to live on. They need that organic matter. So it's actually a huge boon when it comes to june and july and those places where we fed extra where there is wasted hay quote unquote because those animals actually really benefit from feeding on it as it rots into the ground and becomes great organic matter so they're not outside or they're outside all the time they're never inside and when the wind does blow um i got this idea from learning about musk oxen. But the thing that really was a tipping point for me was I watched this movie. It was a feature length movie that um, was a real sleeper for a while. It's called March of the Penguins. And I took my kids to see it when it was in the theater. And it was uh, just this incredibly awesome story about Antarctic penguins and, and what kind of brutal conditions they have to raise young in and how far they had to walk from the Antarctic um, ocean and uh, what they do is they huddle up in these um, very, very tight bunches. of Several thousand penguins will be in a bunch. And that way they can you know, withstand these brutal Antarctic winds that are coming down with an ambient temperature of 60 below zero with a windshield down to, you know, in the hundreds of degrees below zero. So anyway, we started feeding our cattle in these tight little circles. When we got a wind forecast coming... We feed these cattle off of uh, a wagon pulled by a team of horses or a tractor pulling a wagon full of hay, and we 'll feed it in these very tight concentric circles, so these animals all are gathered up like penguins in a very, very tight configuration, <laughs> and we actually see them shifting from front from outside the circle into the middle and rotating as they get cold and it's, they actually behave very much like the penguins, and are very comfortable in that situation. So that's that's the only thing we have to do different, if the wind's puffing at all. Other than that, um, they do well if it's not windy, 30 below zero. If we feed them enough, they're comfortable, Doug.
0: Well, I think there was another movie where the penguins were actually singing as they were doing that. Do, you, do your cows sing?
1: Um, you know, I haven't... I've been working on them with that, and I spent a lot of time on on foot among them. I actually um have one employee who likes to lay down among them but neither of us have gotten them to start singing yet um (laughs) there's not a lot of cattle vocalizations that we've been able to really get them to do Um, you know and that's not to say that that won't happen one day Doug it's possible
0: well so did you have to shovel any barns this year or did you lose any structures because of the amount of snowfall
1: oh wow yeah um no no, we haven't showed anything. We've only gone about two feet here. Um, you guys in Boise, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I maybe mean, we don't even want to talk about what you have down there.
0: Okay. Um, well, that's You know, amazing about to barn me.
1: collapse. And, yeah. Yeah. So we, we don't have the snow depth. And it's because, I mean, Doug, if you come up here, we're surrounded by these, like, ten to twelve thousand foot peaks and they take it all. They're very greedy and they take all the surplus snow. So when we get two feet on the ground, it is incredible. I mean I've talked to many old timers in this valley and the amount of snow is incredible. They have never seen this much snow. So very unusual winter from snowfall, but not from a temperature standpoint.
0: Does your herd change size over the course of a year, depending on the season, or is it pretty stable?
1: It's pretty dynamic. Um, we try to harvest as many as are close to ready before winter comes. Um, and, and it's not because it's this difficult period for bovines or anything like that. It's a difficult f- period for us financially yeah. because, hey, costs money, you know? And when we're putting it out there, it just costs you know costs go exponentially hay right now is pretty cheap but we're feeding up to two times as much hay when it's 30 below zero so you know it's our number one cost when you look at a production standpoint of in in agriculture number one cost is cattle feed and if you can minimize the amount of winters you can put them through well you're going to keep more money in your pocket so that's
0: that's the only
1: thing we try to harvest as many as we can before winter
0: and then, do you uh, grow your own? I know a lot of farmers do both, where they they have a little hay operation, and they do you have, or do you buy it from someone else that does it?
1: We raise. Typically, we raise all our own, but this winter just took us by surprise. So there's, we we used to ranch near Salmon, Idaho. This was about, oh, I guess, about 13, 14 years ago. We were ranching near Salmon, Idaho, and I certification uh organic certification was happening down there but we're certifying some lease ground actually one of the guys it was an older gentleman um that we certified down there he had an interest in continuing even when we pulled our local operation out and i passed the certification on to him so it's really cool because i can buy certified organic hay from him now and it's only about an hour's drive away and normally we don't buy any hay, but this year I called them. I said, Paul, I need hay. We're in trouble
2: <laughs> because
1: our cattle are eating so much that um, I knew I was going to need outside hay. Probably around the first of the year it, it was getting ugly already because, boy, December, they were just, uh, you know, it was already cold. It wasn't 30, 35 below zero yet, yet, but I knew that those cattle were eating way more than we planned on them eating in previous years.
0: Well, so you mentioned like the idea of minimizing costs, and so yes. this is the idea of, okay, we've got this beautiful rangeland in Idaho, and there's just wild grass everywhere, and then yes. you just get a herd of cows and roll them out and make a million dollars. That's how it works, right? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's
1: what gets people started. <laughs> that, that's setting the hook. <laughs> so... Um, and it, it appears like that, you know, of course, those rangelands are unavailable right now because they're under more snow than we are, so that's not going to be a happening deal. Um, and the other part of it is, you know, late in the season, especially if you're lactating, you know, you got a lactating cow trying to raise a baby. When those grasses cure out, because, you know, we have a very kind of seasonal precipitation track, a lot of it happens in the winter, and then we get some spring monsoonal flow, that um, you know gets us through June and July, and it's usually August. It's it's what we know, you know, because you live in Boise and I live in Central Idaho. It's fire season. It's when it gets smoky often, and it's because everything dries out simultaneously with those high temperatures and high degree days of August. That is a problem for a cattle producer as well because, well, those um, those mama cows out there on the range raising those babies, they just have a hard time keeping up because the nutrition plane falls dramatically as those, as those grasses uh, cure with the onset of August. So, you know, your growing season is short. Um, you know, in your country down there, in the hills the Niwahi and, you know, the foothills of the Salmon River Mountains, well, you could, you know, get some good green grass probably going on in uh, maybe late March or April. But, you know, the clock starts ticking then, and by August it's going to be wrapped up, and you need to be thinking about how you're going to manage your herd accordingly to keep up with the rhythms of those grasses.
0: So then the other side of this is that there's the whole political side to the conservationists who think ranchers are the devil, and these cows are destroying the natural environment, (laughs) and they're killing fish, and... And so, how do yeah. you how do you combat the, these tree huggers that are everywhere in Boise?
1: Well, um, I don't know if it's a combative stance <laughs> that that needs to be employed here. I mean, it's rather—I uh, was I being a little facetious, of course. Yeah, I get that, um, but I think we need to bend an ear and and listen and find out exactly what the heck is going on. Because here's the deal, Doug. You know. Um, This, you know, the environmental awareness phenomena is a relatively new thing. And, uh, you know, in a rancher's mind, they were the original environmentalists. They were the people who knew the landscape. They were the people who've been here. And they've been on the land. And they've been running cows up there, you know, maybe third generation now. Theoretically, 75. So see why they have a little bit of um you know property about it they uh they got some ownership involved they got a long-term investment and then some tree hugger comes along and says hey you're wrecking all this stuff but you know what i've realized is that um you know i've been on both sides of the fence you know and and i kind of watched it from a distance when i was a, a a forester here's what happened with the forest industry we I was, you know, we sold some timber as a BLM forester, but you know, we tried to really kind of manage the whole forest landscape ecologically, and integrate fire, and ensure that you know we had um, wildlife enhancement in hand. And we we're trying, we we're habitat enhancers. We believe we were trying to reverse what you know 80 years of smoke of the bear had done to the forest, in that there was so much, so much volume in terms of biology there there's so much biomass growing and dying there that if we did get a fire in there it was going to be a catastrophic one so we saw us as the people who could maybe give the forest hope and kind of reignite this historical forest again you know that was pre basically before people showed up so anyway we were trying to do some really cool things and we didn't really have much environmental appeals going on but the forest service right next to us in the next building in salmon idaho was and they had an incredible um incredibly huge amount of people working in forestry and timber and logging and road construction and all these things and i they they started to respond to these environmental appeals from these so-called tree huggers people you know the environmentalists and whatnot and trying to Trying to like at least pretend to bend an ear to him and listen, but it was too little, too late, Doug. And um, now the forest industry on national forest land in the intermountain west is pretty much over. It's they're pretty much a recreational forest now, and this all happened so quickly. This this happened in just ten or fifteen years, and it was because the, the old school just refused to listen to what these people had in mind and as a result you know they just litigated them right out of business and so i'm afraid that the same thing could happen in public lands grazing and it doesn't have to because i I see all this exciting stuff that could be going on if if we could think in terms of E- ecological management of those rangelands and not only ecological sustainability but ecological enhancement you know we could actually use cows to um actually promote you know um better ecosystem function in things that are now broken because of years and years of fire suppression and public lands grazing that was probably the wrong way to do it so you know if we step back and say Let's step back three, four hundred years ago and let's take a look at what was happening, at least, say, just here, you know, on the rangelands around Alder Spring Ranch. There was some buffalo uh, running around or some wolves running around or some grizzly bears running around. There was salmon uh, coming up the rivers and it did look different. We, we like to think that if we pull the cows off and we just leave it alone, it'll look exactly like it was three or four hundred years ago but there's all these habitat components that are no longer part of these systems and the large bovines like we you know i know we had buffalo up here because up till 20 years ago uh, my neighbors were coming back with buffalo skulls from forested landscapes up around our rangelands so they were a part of the system so if we can reintegrate you know the scale and use of our bovines to mimic some of those things and try to enhance those plant populations and enhance those fish populations, those sage grass populations well there's there's a lot of exciting things that could be done in concert in working with those people who have huge environmental concerns about public lands grazing, and we we could We could actually use them as a tool, and that that's what we're trying to do here. we're trying to get a hard look at how that would work.
0: Yeah, I seem to remember a, a Yellowstone documentary where they showed how the reintroduction of wolves actually benefited the overall habitat because they created a more dynamic system and certain areas that were easy for grazing became more of a a spot. And so it just benefited the whole system, and interestingly.
1: Yeah, they, they needed to be there. Because, uh, Doug, I don't know how old you are, I'm not looking at you on Skype and um But uh, I probably bumped into you at some point along the line in Boise, but here's the deal. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, I was in Yellowstone Park and I spent a lot of time there. And um, it was almost like it was almost like a call to action scenario because these riparian areas, I, I saw riparian exclosures in Yellowstone Park and upland exclosures that were so dramatically different from what was on the ground there. And it was just bison use. And, uh, and I think the wolves have actually redistributed the bison and kind of retrained them to the way bison historically roamed. What's interesting about bison um, is I've, I've looked at some real recent pictures of uh, habitat use around riparian areas, around rivers and creeks in Yellowstone Park where bison are using them. And uh, there's not a lot of use anymore. And there used to be a lot. And there was a lot pre-wolf introduction. So now it's like the bison are not using those willow copses along the creeks and rivers anymore. And I think it's because there's this newly reintegrated predator factor where these wolves would hide down there and just wait to take something away. So now you see buff- buffalo used in the uplands. And you know, high in a way, and pretty good herd development up there, but not a lot of use by in riparian areas because of this wolf dynamic being re- reintroduced. And that's that's a lesson we can learn. You know, so historically, we could say, hey, buffalo used this area, but they probably did not use uh, riparian areas very much because of this predator factor that was there all the time. It was this known quantity of riparian areas. You go down there to get a drink and you get out. And now cows have not had that. And um, as a result, there's a lot of riparian use. They'll shade up there, they'll graze the good grass, they'll, they'll drink plentiful water and they'll just stay there and camp there. And as a result, degradation will occur. So if we can be that same kind of agent that doesn't allow that, that says no grazing, in riparian areas, zero zero tolerance um, with our cowboys and with our moves, we can then mimic that same enhancement thing that's happening in Yellowstone Park right now because of those predators.
0: And so this kind of opens up the the field of the na- the notion of balancing, like trying to balance your own personal profit versus the the land that's sustaining you. And you're all working together here, Um, but wolves were something that ranchers definitely did not want any predators stealing money from them. So so where are you at with uh, growing and, and vibrant wolf populations kind of coming back into the mix? Is that making your job much harder, or do you just have to be a little smarter?
1: It was a paradigm shift, Doug. It was a huge paradigm shift because, um, we frankly were not ready. We were already ranching before wolf reintroduction occurred. I remember I was actually there when these wolves, these first Canadian wolves got off the truck in salmon, Idaho, before the first release, they released, I think it was 12 of them. And I, I remember looking right through the, uh, the grates on the wolf crate as they got off the truck and they were being uh, reloaded onto another truck that was then going to take him, um, and, and drop them off in various places through Lemhi County. And I remember looking, to eye at that wolf through there and I was just wondering what, what this was going to bring. And I had no idea. I had no idea that they would be as successful as they were. And they got successful to the point where um, there was one season of grazing up there in the Hat Creek allotment, which is Alder Springs rangeland allotment where we summer our cattle. We came back 14 heads short, and I'm pretty sure most of them were, were wolf kills because we found traces of quite a few of them. So you know, maybe some of them were other causes, but um, you know, before that, Doug, you know, we'd maybe be missing one or two and then we'd find them, um, later on in the season and we'd come back a hundred percent. But when these wolves really took off, um, they, they really, they really took a bite out of our bottom line. It, it was huge. So, um, so that was a shock. And, uh, then it, 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 it kind of, reduced from that point on but there was a, a tipping point year for us we were running yearlings up there and um i was in a grocery store in chalice idaho we'd already turned cattle out and i bumped into a friend of mine um from up the valley for me and he says we're in the checkout line he says how's it going and he says how's the big dogs treating you and that's what people around here called wolves you know how's the big dogs treating you up there and i said well right now you know everything looks good." I, Just was up there yesterday. Everything seems pretty low key. Cattle are doing well. They seem unstressed. Apparently we haven't had any wolves in there. And he said, well, you have no idea. I said, what are you talking about? He said, there's an entire den and they're all radio collared in your next pasture where you're heading up near near Table Mountain. I said, how do you know this? And he then gave me the phone number of a guy who observed them several days before so anyway i had a panic attack and called (laughs) called fish and game and I said wait a second we're supposed to move up there with our yearlings um here in a week and why didn't you call me and say that you got a radio caller dan up there and he said i i I am sorry we 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 were we've gotten really busy and we're kind of hoping they would move and he said i I was going to notify you but I guess we're talking right now. And I said, well, you know, to me, it's totally unacceptable for me to go up there. And he said, well, no, 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 you could go up there. You're perfectly within your rights to kill them all. And I said, no, no, that doesn't even make any sense. I said, you guys spend a lot of time and money, um, you know, radio collaring these animals and doing a studying on them. And, um, you know, every piece of information we learn about these animals is going to benefit all of us. So I said, you know, I have no I have no interest in doing that. I said, we're gonna figure something else out. And anyway, Carol, my wife and I put our heads together over the next few days and we, we looked at our grass resources at home and we said, you know what, let's just pull them. Let's just pull them and we'll bring them back home. And we did over the next week. We gathered everybody up off the range, brought them home. It was uh, mid-July. And uh, we just kept them home for the summer. And we were reducing grass productivity as a result. But we needed some time, Doug, to scratch our heads and decide, what are we going to do different? We need a paradigm shift.
0: Yeah, and, that, and that's the interesting question to me. What did you do dis- different? With all these different um, – trying to work with the land to – you you know, you, you said you took your forest service – Background and so instead of being another taxing element, how can you create part of a uh, closed system that grows what synergistically or some you know what what sure. what did you sure. do? What was the answer?
1: No, there's a there's a relationship way to get into this thing, and you know we we didn't have any relationship with the whole wolf portion of our of our rangelands. You know we were. You know, Carol and I have always considered ourselves to be ecologically minded, but we never really made a connection with this whole carnivore thing and how it could possibly uh, relate to how then we can manage and, and grow to, you know, the enhancement of the ecological system up there. But also, you know, our fundamental benefit in terms of how do we make money, you know, because we're not going to do it if it's not something that's that's going to be worth it for us as well. So that's what we spent that summer thinking about. And we actually were stumped. We were you know, we did a lot of reading. We called a lot of people and, and nobody had good answers. Um, and you know what it was? Um, we got a little bluegrass band, Doug, <laughs> and we. um we we play bluegrass and uh, we we have this little Christmas caroling thing that we do up and down the valley where we uh, go and sing some carols to old folks up and down the valley who can't get out, you know, and and a lot of these folks, you know, they expect us now. They, they just invite us in and, uh, you know, we go in there and sing some carols, they got some cookies ready, you know, and cup of coffee or something like that. And we get to talking with them. But anyway, we're at Roy and Jeannie Ellis' house and it's about five miles down the valley. And I'm singing these Christmas carols and he has got his walls covered with Charles Russell paintings, you know, CM Russell, um, kind of a chronicler of the, um, early Cowboy days of the big sky country of Eastern Montana. And uh, you've got these, you know, stereotypical now paintings, these watercolors of uh, cowboys on horseback with huge herds of cattle, interacting with Native Americans, with wolves, all these things. And I, you know, I just fixed my eye on one of these paintings. I'm standing right next to it and I said, wait a second these guys lived with their cattle they lived with their cattle 24 7 and why did they live with their cattle they lived with their cattle because well there's there's a pretty good rustler thing going on then there was a lot of wolves there's a lot of grizzly bears around um they lived with their cattle to put them on good grass they they didn't just turn them out doug they, they didn't open a gate and say goodbye to bessie until october and that's what's been happening ever since the advent of barbed wire. And there's no fences in Charles Russell's paintings. It's open range, it's just wide open country. And these cattle guys, these cowboys, they were essentially the fence. It was a moving fence, it was a live fence on horseback. So we got home that night and I started thinking about it. And next few days, I started talking to Carol about it. I said, What if? We did that. We kind of did that and modified it according to what current day is, and actually put our cowboy crews out there with cattle 24 7. Because another friend of mine, Brian Bean of the Lava Lake Lamb, actually was doing this already with his sheep. You never leave sheep out there, you always have a sheep herder running around with a few great Pyrenees dogs, right? And I called him and I said, Well, why can't we just do this with cows? And what's your wolf interaction level? And he said, you know what, Glenn? These wolves are very, very smart animals. And if you, as a human, have a presence on the ground with your cattle or sheep, you're likely to have predator interactions be zero. And you know what, Brian was prophetic because we've done it now for um, going on three years, and it's zero. There's zero. We have wolves howling. We have wolf tracks around. Um, There's just no interaction with their cattle because we live with them. We sleep with them. We bed them down right next to where we sleep. And uh, it's not like we got to shoot at them and haze them off. They just don't trust humans. And they know that we're kind of top dog food chain predators. And they respect that. And it's not this adverse relationship it's just a, a sphere of respect and um we just had no interactions with them and you know what we take lessons from the yellowstone buffalo they stay out of riparian areas our cattle never go in them they never go in them so we you know it's it's a win-win situation we're, we're not losing any cattle anymore to uh wolf interactions and you know our riparian enhancement the fisheries um, habitat quality has improved so dramatically since we started doing this that um, it's kind of a no-brainer. And here's the other crazy thing. We actually see that our cattle are spending more time eating during the day when we're on the ground. there, actively herding them. Um, and it's not like we're driving them. We're actually just barely directing them, but they eat more grass and shoot you know, that sounds like a pretty good deal when you're, you know, trying to mitigate these other things that you actually have an enhancement to your bottom line as you go. So, um, it's exciting. We're embarking on year three where we try this full on this coming spring. And, uh, it's, it's been working marvelously.
0: Well So then how much of the year are you on horseback? Oh, it's about,
1: um, three to four months. So, um, Because we mostly run yearlings up there, Doug. So we'll get up there in the spring when the grass is good. And like this year, I think, this coming year, 17, I think we're going to pull off come the beginning of August. Remember I talked about earlier in the podcast where that grass cures out. And, uh, you know, we don't get a lot of good weight gain then. And um, we just thought, hey, we'll just leave all that for the elk and pull off. And when it gets hot. And cattle are happier and more comfortable down here. So, you know, we'll be up there for 92, 120 days on horseback on the range with the cattle and then we'll bring them home. And by then our home pastures will have harvested our hay. Our home pastures will be really, really rocking on um, irrigated ground grass. And it's kind of, a, it's capitalizing on the best of both pieces of country and the cool thing about the wild landscape for us, and and we're trying to cultivate our own, you know, organic certified ground here to get the same soil biota that our rangelands had, so that we get the nutrition dense. The crazy thing is, we pull ribeyes off cattle that we harvest immediately off the range, and they are the—I I don't even know how to describe them. They, They have a flavor profile that I can't replicate anywhere else. And and our home ground comes close because it's, you know, we've done this organic thing now for 12 years and our soil diversity, our soil biotic diversity is much better than it was when I do an earthworm count on our irrigated ground here. And now it's much higher than it was back 12 years ago when we got started on this organic thing. So I know that we're harvesting more nutrition there as well, even on our private ground, but it's legendary when we come off the range. And it's because there's been no um, soil leaching up there um, by agricultural use and agricultural exposure of any kind. None of that ground's been plowed. All the biotics are intact in that soil and all the plants are native populations that um are basically the same as they were three or four hundred years ago so you know if we're going to harvest nutrition density that's where to get it and that's i think what we can pick up in flavor you know it's just like eating a a, a heirloom heirloom tomato um that's grown on um you know say a permaculture type garden you know that has a lot of soil biotic potential and a lot of soil diversity and that's chemical free and you cut into that tomato and you're like that is the essence of tomato and that tomato is actually a parallel of what we can harvest off those rangelands when you cut into a ribeye off that rangeland that nutrient density comes forth in flavor and you're like that is definitive beef that is the way beef should taste so that's exciting to us because we've actually picked up flavor test differences because we test 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 we we're just absolutely relentless about testing um you know we unfortunately somebody's got to do the dirty work of testing new york strips every two weeks and that happens to be carol and i but (laughs) you know we have a, a a real heavy testing thing and actually those little um Idiosyncrasies of coming off those nutrient dense soils on a range carry carried forward in that beef, and that's exciting
0: well so that's that's one attribute that you can like physically point to and say this land is producing a better flavored beef. what about you yes. like your own psychology and uh your your relationship to this space now how, what is what how has it changed in the last three years that you're actually living with the cows in the in their habitat
1: well now that, that's a really good question because um and th- this little story tells the essence of what the difference is when we first started running up on a range doug you know um we only have like one or two cowboys working with us now with this the way we're doing the range we have a few more but in talking to the cowboys when we turn out say in 2005 we actually use this word and now i just absolutely have this visceral feeling about this word we use this word and it was the word feed we'd say boy that hill up there that mountain that mountainside up there on hat creek that's got some good feed on it we'd say that and uh and I didn't think anything of it because, well, that's what we were after up there was feed, you know, and and while trying to maintain standards. So the BLM and forest were happy with us in terms of riparian and in terms of these other species. I, as a forester, really love Aspen. And I had a real love for seeing Aspen regeneration happen. So we were careful to manage for that in '05, but still we called it feed. And now, I find myself always correcting my cowboys if they ever use that word feed i get after them because it's not feed that is grass that's grass because there's there's a lot more than us using grass up here and calling it feed there's all these other animals there's all these other things out there on the landscape that might not even use grass but have grass integrated into, into their life and The cool thing about being up there and living with the cattle and having this kind of intimate husbandry relationship with them up there is that that grass, you now have a relationship with, because you start seeing all this stuff going on you see other animals and birds using it that you didn't even know about before. You, you, you have these observations of the landscape that you just kind of did a drive by. You know, before it wasn't sure it wasn't 55 miles an hour driving on a highway, but it was just hey we're running these cattle through here we're trying to get to that feed up there on the hill, and now we actually spend time and <laughs> you know w- when you're living with the cattle there's not a lot going on sometimes you got them kind of placed on this beautiful hillside of waving in the wind blue bunch wheat grass or salmon river wild rye. And you just get off your horse and it's kind of a warm June day and you sit in the shade of that horse and you actually look at all these little things that you never observed before. Like one of the things is um, I just watch what these cattle pick on at different times of year. And, you know, I've seen them eating elk bones all the way up to um, greasewood, um, which, which is supposed to be a toxic plant. Um, Doug, but actually what they're doing, I realize, is they're balancing their nutrition by just trying all these things. It's like you and I, when we go to a salad bar, you know, when we get to a really big salad bar, you know, that has all these wonderful things in it and, and you know, and I'm not talking to canned junk and some restaurant, you know, I, the, the co-ops bar can be like this where I just enjoy grazing all this stuff. And the next day I go back to the salad bar. I'm going to try different things. And I think it's because I'm matching what my nutritional demands that my body is trying to speak to me about. I'm trying to um, respond to this and eat flavor according to what my body's nutrition is calling for. And I think these cattle are doing the exact same thing. And you see, you know, you'll see nests and burrows and bugs and, You know, you're on the ground. You're actually on the ground. You have a relationship now with this that's just beginning, you know, and that's what's really exciting. And so I always have loved these wild landscapes. You know, I've always been kind of a wilderness guy. You know, even in the winter, spent a lot of time backcountry skiing. Um, Always enjoyed, um, you know, hitting high country with nothing but a fish pole and just exploring country up there and being on horseback. But now there's this whole other aspect of love. And it's because I'm now seeing all these complex in relationships that it took watching my cattle up there and me on the range with them to introduce me to these ideas. So that that's, what's exciting. And sometimes I'll get a cowboy that actually starts picking up on those things. And they'll come back excited. Do you know what I saw today? You know, and uh, that's exciting. That's really exciting stuff because it's not only about Carol and I loving that landscape. It's about all the, you know, women and men that we have working for us up there also receiving that same knowledge. And they all learn different things. And together we can kind of synergize that stuff and share that those ideas with each other. So that's very, very exciting. Um, does that answer your question?
0: It does. <laughs> and that was 42 yes. minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us.
1: Oh, you bet. It was my pleasure.
0: Wonderful. You've been listening to Glenn Eldingo. Be sure and check out his website, which is alderspring.com. You can see pictures of his ranch and his horses and actually order steaks from that website. For more information about The Sink Book, our guests at Cat Pass shows, or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at if you like this podcast, would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com/membership. Thanks so much, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Thank you, Doug. It was a real pleasure. It was great talking to you. Yeah, I saw you do a talk at the Idaho. Center for Conservation. What is that thing
1: called? Idaho Center Sustainable Agriculture. S- yeah, you bet. Yeah, and one yeah. of
0: the, you did. You had this great picture of the uh, the cows coming down this mountainside, and you said, "See this? This is volcanic dust. This is why yeah. my yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is why mine tastes better than everyone else's, or we have a, <laughs> a unique flavor that cannot be matched." Yeah, yeah,
1: but. Uh, Anyway, I mean, is, is that kind
0: of the direction you want to go? That was perfect. Yeah. Our discussion. Or? Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> okay. All right. Will you have a good day? All right. Hey, thanks again, Doug. You take care. You too. Bye bye.
2: For a run too low, I'm walking on the southern stream. Get to the river for a run too low.